imagine this. You're at the networking event of the season and somebody comes up to you and their big, super important opener is crazy weather we're having. Or let's exchange business cards. You know, we all get used to that same crap over and over again. So that's why I'm super excited to have Matt on. We're going to talk about a different way to network, giving yourself something actually interesting to talk about. So Matt Necci sounds like sketchy. His words uh, is an attorney and author that is at his best when he's in service to others. Matt's love of community engagement shapes who he is as a person, as well as how he functions inside and outside the courtroom. His musings about the Yukon, the Yukon Huskies nonprofit fundraising and taking ownership of your community can be found at at UConnetch.com, U-C-O-N-N-E-T-C-H on Twitter. Um, today we're talking with Matt about a, a book that he wrote that is, it's, I guess it's, it's fiction, right, Matt? But it's based on your grandfather's story. It is. It's a historical fiction novel based in World War II era, um, loosely based on my grandfather's life, who was an Italian immigrant and came to the States uh, before having to go back overseas to, to fight in World War II. And so now, instead of getting at those events with people you haven't seen in, you know, the better part of two years and talking about something banal, Matt's going to talk to us about how we can give ourselves some awesome things to talk about, to build that relationship, to have the best networking, to enjoy it the most, etc. So I'm going to dive into that with Matt in a couple seconds. But first, I want to talk about our last episode. Uh, most recently, we had Stephanie Vaughn Jones on from Money Penny, who talked to us about the top communication tips you need to know. So helping law firm owners through what has continued to be the work from home migration or at least the accessible on so many different channels. So some interesting tidbits over there, but enough about that, Matt, I want to dive in. So before we get into the book, I know we talked about Yukon Huskies a little bit in the bio, but like, give me a little bit of a rundown of who is Matt Sketchy Nechi. Um, so first and foremost, problem solver, whether it's uh, at work, at home, uh, I enjoy being um, presented interesting situations and trying to work myself out of them. Um, I'm married to my high school sweetheart. I have two kids, uh, two golden retrievers who are basically make it four kids. Um, as you referenced, I'm a, about as passionate of a Yukon Husky alum as you can possibly be. Um, season ticket holder. My wife and I just started a scholarship at the university um, for students that graduated from our high school this year. So pretty passionate about all things Yukon for sure. So do we need to have the, uh, the throwdown as uh, Greg and I being UCF people? I think we had the, what was it, the civil conflict? Yeah, yeah we're still looking for the trophy. Um, you know, the American Athletic Conference is probably an era that uh, I would not say I look fondly upon, um, not our finest hour. Um, but I will always remember the conflict uh, that Coach Diaco created between the two schools for sure. And I think last I heard the, uh, there was like a UCF player who was like, oh, that, we have a rivalry trophy with them? <laughs> Um, the ultimate, the ultimate smack talk on uh, the college football field, but so be it. Now, so talk to me a little bit about, you know, going through after high school, college, law school, you know, where you've worked as a lawyer. Yeah. So actually, you know, coming out of, I was part of a generation, I graduated from UConn in 2003. So I'm 41 now, but at the time was part of a generation where, um, you know, I was a history major. I didn't want to be a historian. I was a journalism major and I didn't want to be a journalist, um, but I really enjoyed writing and I loved historical things. So what did you do in the early to mid 2000s if you had a liberal arts degree and weren't sure what you're going to do with it? You went to law school. That was part of what happened. Um, during law school, I thought I was going to become a prosecutor. I spent a lot of uh, 
a year and a half working in the New York County District Attorney's Office, which is, for those who aren't familiar, it's it's the Manhattan DA. It's what law and order is based off of. So, um, you know, growing up from in central Connecticut in a middle to small town, uh, and then being in the middle of Manhattan and, and being there right after 9-11. So you're dealing with terrorism issues, um, drug issues, FBI. Um, it, it was a pretty interesting moment in my life. Um, but during law school, I got engaged and my wife, who is a teacher, um, she was confident that she didn't want to teach in New York City. And at the time, um, I believe if I would stayed with the, the Manhattan DA's office, I was going to have to uh, support us living in Manhattan on about a $60,000 a year salary, which was not going to happen. Um, so when she got her job in Connecticut, um, although my family is all from Brooklyn, New York originally, and I would have loved to have stayed in that area, um, everyone had kind of migrated to the greater Hartford area. So it was kind of a no-brainer to come back to Connecticut. Um, worked at a small uh, firm where I actually am now again, but started my career at, at the Monstream and May Law Firm, which did a lot of uh, workers' compensation, employment law issues. Uh, like a lot of attorneys are early in their career, you say you don't want to be pigeonholed. So I wanted to go to big law. Um, I did end up getting a job at a large Connecticut law firm, started a practice group there, had a really, really successful run for 10, 11 years, and then decided, to, you know, I think I'm ready to move on and actually I'm back at Monstream now doing some work with them. Again, focusing on workers' comp, uh, labor and employment, general litigation issues. So that's what I'm doing right now. But, uh, you know, 16 years in, it's kind of crazy how fast things go by. The, uh, you know, it's so funny because I know we uh, we talked before. So obviously also a history major who uh, didn't want to become a history professor. And then for me, for me as a prosecutor, it was 49,000, which I think probably goes a little bit farther in Orlando than 60,000 would in uh in new york city but yeah i mean it's it's interesting you know the more we talk to more lawyers right the more we realize we all have the same problems and that's you know we say that in a good way when you go to the doctor's office you want the doctor to say oh yeah you've got so and so we treat that all the time you don't want them to be like congratulations we have jordan ostroff disease no one's ever had this before we have no idea how to treat it so right uh, it's always nice all right so i want to hear about the book but i want to rewind a little bit like what led to obviously you got the history background you got the journalism background but like what was the I'm going to write a book. Like, what was that moment like? Yeah, I mean, I love writing. So even in what I do, you know, generally, as you move on in your legal career, the higher you move along on the t on the uh, the ladder, you tend to let uh, more junior attorneys take on the writing. And, and I've never really been in, in that way, whether it's writing a trial brief or an appellate brief. I just love storytelling. Um, and that's how I look at legal writing is you're trying to be a persuasive writer. So my background as a journalist for, you know, being to the point and uh, knowing how to get people's attention early on, I had taken that into my legal career. So I had always enjoyed writing. Um, you know, the story of my grandfather's life always fascinated me. He did, like a lot of World War II vets, he didn't talk about his life uh, growing up in Italy. You know, his family sent him to the United States when he was in his early teens. He did not want to come here. He, you know, they, they lived on an olive farm. And, uh, you know, he, he was in school and he was farming and he loved being there in a, in a small village, uh, Anagni, which is a little south of Rome. But his family sent him here, um, economic reasons in Italy, but also because what was happening in Europe and with Mussolini in Italy. And uh, against his will, you know, he came to the States and then a few years after settling in, he was forced to go, you know, he's drafted by the U.S. Army and went back to Europe and had to fight. And 
the story that I wrote, I say it's loosely based on him because it's not a memoir. Um, my story focuses more on um, time in New York and then in the Italian um, battleground areas in, in the war. But my grandfather was a really impressive guy, uh, was a medic in the army, uh, did go to Sicily, but then after Sicily went up and, you know, was involved in D-Day and then later in Battle of the Bulge. So this really incredible person from an unbelievable generation that just never talked about those things. But the idea of having, you know, I could never imagine if my family moved to England or Canada or Brazil, and then a few years later, I had to join the army and go fight the United States. It, it just, it, it was so fascinating to me. I just couldn't imagine having to make that decision in life. And, and I guess it wasn't a decision, right? The draft existed. So there was little he could do to fight that, but it just fascinated me. And it was something I always was interested in diving deeper into. Um, like everyone in the world, COVID happened and, you know, I'm a litigator. So I spend a lot of time traveling, going to courthouses, depositions all over the state, different parts of the country. And that wasn't happening during COVID, right? So you weren't in your car for three hours in a day and you had a little bit more time, um, because courts all over, but in Connecticut were closed. So, you know, I had spoken to my wife, um, in the middle of COVID, I think I was 39. And I said, this would be something is a, is a going into turning 40 would be a really interesting thing to do. And then right March happened and then May was coming and I was about to turn 39 and that year was coming. And I looked at her and I said, if, if this is going to happen, I really have to do it. And God bless my wife. She said, I think this is something you should do. And so I started with an outline and then I didn't like where the outline was going. The story, it didn't make a lot of sense to me. And then, so I said, I'm just going to write. And if I write a chapter, I'm going to have her read it. If she's interested in knowing more, I'm going to write again. And that happened for about two or three chapters where uh, my, she's, a, she's a passionate reader. She's an English teacher. So she loves reading. And I figured if she's interested and wants to know what happens next, then maybe I'm going in the right direction. And then after about three chapters, the, the characters kind of took on a life of their own. Like I was excited. It's, it sounds cheesy to say, because I've heard other authors say this. I was excited to know what was going to happen next. I was looking forward to, I wrote every day, um, probably over a six month period. Maybe there'd be a day or two where I was forcing it and I'd have to take some time off. But for the most part, I wrote every day. And, but did um, you have, was yeah. there a, was there a goal or a limit on it? Or was it just like whatever, you know, inspiration hits? My goal every week was to have a very rough draft of a chapter. Gotcha. Um, and so I would hack at it. You know, it's how I do legal writing too. I, I want to print it out. I hack at it, let her read it and then get some notes and kind of backfill in. So that was my goal was every week, but I also didn't want to go crazy. You know, we've all read books where there's 50 page chapters. And by the end of that chapter, you want to bang your head against the wall. So I tried to limit everything to 12 to 15 pages so that it was a constant turnaround. People were interested. And that was kind of my, the, the, the goal and the skeleton I worked around when I was moving forward with the book. Gotcha. So like what for people that are, let's say they want to sit down and write a book or start doing more writing now, and maybe there, there are back to driving as much, any tips on how to find some of that time? If it's not just the, you know, COVID, we don't have to drive to a bunch of courthouses for two hours for five minute hearing type thing. Yeah. And I wish I could say like a lot of my writing happened during the day, but although courts weren't open, I still had a job. And, uh, you know, as an owner at my firm, I had people I had to, I was responsible for. So there was work to get done. I would have loved for all of my writing to have happened from eight to five. That's just not how it worked. So there was a lot of nights where, you know, kids are going to bed at nine o'clock. I'm staying up till one or two in the morning writing. 
Um, I looked at it very much uh, similar to how when I ran a, I ran a marathon when I was in law school. Um, it's a big goal, and you can sometimes get overwhelmed with the final product, right? You're worried about all the work it's going to take to finish as opposed to sometimes just jumping in. And so I think that what I could tell people is at some point you have to put pen to paper, right? You can overthink things, but there can be paralysis with analysis. So at some point you just got to dig in and, and let the work take over. Yeah. I love, um, I know there's a, it's not a meme. It's a, you know, an image and it's got like two ladders, you know, and one ladder it's got, you know, 10 feet between the rungs and the guy sitting there trying to get to the first one. And the next one, it's like every foot and the person's, you know, six or seven steps up because it's easier to do. So I'm with you on the making it a uh, digestible bit. Yeah. People worry about in, in my experience in life is listen, everyone's got their own issues. So I try not to make more of what's going on in my life is what anyone else is dealing with. But I do think we waste more energy focused on things we can't control. So during COVID, I couldn't control if stores were open or if courts were shut down. I didn't have the excuse of saying, well, I can't sit at my computer and write, right? That was something I could control. So although I did binge watch TV, right? I watched like everyone, Tiger King and all that stuff. Um, I could write and I it, it let me kind of forget what else was happening in the world. So for me, it was really cathartic. And were you like, were you talking to people about I'm working on a book or were you trying to hold it close to the vest until it was done? I played it pretty tight to the vest until, um, not until it was done, but until I had a manuscript. Um, and then once I had a manuscript, you know, I put out a little screenshot on my Instagram account because that really made it real all of a sudden. It wasn't just me and my wife sitting in the house looking at this thing. It was, holy crap, I put this out there and now you, you gotta see this through, right? Um, I want people to, to read it and I think that's hard it's really hard to put yourself out there and um, be once it's out in the marketplace, it's not yours anymore. It's it, people can give their thoughts and they're entitled to give their thoughts, especially if they've paid for the book. So um, that was fr frankly um, an enlightening experience to me to be able to put something that had been my life for really six months and then throw it out there and be like, well, now it's time to get some feedback. And obviously I had, you know, professional editors working with me as we went along. But yeah, I, I really didn't let anyone know what was happening until the, the story was kind of in its rough draft form. And so what was that initial response? You know, you throw this post up on Instagram, you're talking about what you've been up to. Uh, holy crap, right? I mean, that was people, I think, I think people were surprised because um, I had not talked about it at all. And as you can tell by talking with me, I don't shut up. So I, I generally talk a lot. Um, but it was something that I did not talk about. Um, people were really excited to read it, um, which made me feel good because people were interested in, in what I had to say. Um, but I also knew when I first told people about it, it wasn't ready to to be read yet. So the, it was almost like the writing, it was the easy part, the editing it and getting it to a point where I was comfortable to put it out there and go through the artwork for cover design and getting people's opinions on that. Once the, the actual draft was done, things like um, the cover art, I would try to incorporate people that I knew, family, friends, people that follow me on social media and get their thoughts on what they, you know, tried to get them more involved with it to make it a more holistic, all right, now everyone give me some feedback so I can really get this thing to where I want it to be. Gotcha. And so um, walk me through kind of that process through launching the book. Like I know you're, what other ways were you able to bring people into it and kind of make them a part of it? 
Well, what, you know, I was really fortunate. Um, I had a few friends, um, one of whom I think you've, you've met, you've spoken to Carl Fix before. Uh, yep. um, you know, I brought in three or four people to serve as beta readers. So it was really important. Um, my wife's a critical reader, but she is my wife. And I think she does, She, you know, she's very nice. So I wanted people that I trusted um, because they were professionals, but also because they would be honest with me. We had the type of friendships that they could be honest with me. And if something needed to really be worked on, that was incredibly helpful. Um, because I, you know, an editor, a book editor that was helping with the, helping me with the project, they look at it completely differently. They're, they're really more of taking the story and doing the nuances of what it takes to make it an actual book. Um, some of which I was okay with, but some of which I had never written a book before. So, but the beta reader process was one that I found incredibly valuable and it, it let me get some honest feedback. And it also got me to rewrite some parts of the story where they said, well, why did this happen? Or this character doesn't seem to make sense. Um, and, and that was really valuable to helping get the story to where it had to be to be done. Awesome. And then talk to me about the launch. So you've gotten through, you know, you've got the cover, you've got the stuff written, it's edited, you got your beta readers, and now like it's time to put your baby out there. It was it was it was a surreal experience. Um, you know, you have again. I was really fortunate where I had um, several hundred friends, colleagues, um, professional people that I, I knew that weren't just buying the book, but were hawking it out to all of their friends. So it spread in the local professional market really well. Um, where things really, you know, got nuts for me were. Um, I, you know, Barnes and Noble and Amazon, they were selling it on their websites and that was great. It was really interesting to see that. But when I saw local independent stores in the state start carrying the book, and that was frankly from word of mouth, where if people didn't want to go buy it online, they'd go to their bookstore and say, there's this new book. I want to read it. If the store either had it because they saw things coming out is newly published, great. If they didn't, they would say, oh, this is a local author. We want to support local authors. And they'd buy, you know, 20 copies to put on their shelves. And so when you're seeing that um, come up in some local bookstores and then being invited to speak at local uh, book events where authors are speaking, it was um, frankly emotional at the end. You know, when you're on a stage and you go from the a year past, I have this kernel of a story. And, and frankly, it helped me, you know, connect with my grandfather who's been passed for 15 years and then sitting on a stage talking about this thing. Um, I like public speaking. I would be lying if I didn't say like I was nervous and, and frankly emotional at some points just from the journey of what the whole process was. Totally. I mean, any, was there any negative pushback? Like, look, we're lawyers and we talk yeah. about this social media standpoint, like what yeah, was some uh, the hate on it? Uh, I, I won't give names. Um, I sure. can say I've worked with, I worked with people, a partner um, at the time who contacted me and left a voicemail on my phone and said, read your book really good story, but you got this part wrong. And the part they were referencing was a battle um, that I had referenced in the book. And I didn't know what to say to that, frankly. Um, you know, I've gotten my pushback on comments to make about UConn or Greater Hartford um, development on Twitter, but I had not gotten that type of feedback. Um, and so my simple response was, you know, one of the benefits of being a journalism and a history major was I knew the importance, and frankly, an attorney, 
I knew the importance of not just research, but being able to reference my research. And my book did include a, you know, a bibliography that had all the websites and books that I referenced. So all I did, I didn't write anything in the body of the email um, that I sent back to this person other than the six websites, including United States military governmental, you know, not, not random websites, but actual U.S. Army government websites that reference the specific battles that I had talked about in the book. So it was uh, nice to be able to push back in that way. But that was an odd experience for sure when I first got that phone call. Well, at least it wasn't. I thought you were going to tell me that phone call was them being like, "Don't quit your day job," though. Like at least uh, it was. It was the lawyers taking our uh, critical thinking skills through everything, right? Yeah, but you know, it's funny you said that. that was something. Don't quit your day job. I was also cognizant of that, right? I, my day job existed when I was writing this book, and so I had to make sure I was. It was almost working twice as hard because I didn't want there to be a perception with the people I worked with that I hadn't been working this whole time because I've been putting all this time into this book. And so it was extra work to make sure I was getting all the work I need to get done done while still doing this um, larger project on the outside, um, which was important to me. So as this book is out there and people you know are reading it, it's being picked up in bookstores, like talk to me about the, the brand building it's done for you or the connections it's made for you. So again, I, I, I am active. I, I'm, it's kind of, my, I love Twitter. I really do love Twitter, right? It's where I get my news. Um, it's a community that um, I've been able to build a pretty good brand, mostly around the UConn thing, um, UConn athletics thing. So I had kind of a built-in audience. Um, but launching that really let me talk to different types of professionals. And it's a little bit of what I want, why I thought, you know, your podcast made a lot of sense. I did not go into writing the book as an idea that I was gonna use it for a marketing tool. It was something I always wanted to write. But once it existed and it was gaining momentum and it was selling, it seemed crazy not to talk about it. Right. Um, right? So it wasn't just me going on Twitter or my Facebook page talking to friends. It was getting active on my LinkedIn account and talking to people on the phone clients about what I'd been doing during COVID. And the response was amazing. And so what I found helpful was as attorneys, I think we're always looked at, not always, it depends on the setting, but you know, sometimes you're, you're like a three-parted animal and everyone expects you to be great at it. You're supposed to be a great attorney. You're supposed to be a great marketer or developer of business. And you're supposed to be a great mentor of younger attorneys. And that's really hard. I mean, that's a unicorn, quite frankly, if you're really good at all those things. I think when we go out in the marketplace, it's, you have a hard, there's, there's hundreds of thousands of attorneys out there and it's hard to di differentiate yourself. And so whether it's cold calling someone or reaching out to them on a direct message on LinkedIn or being at one of these conferences we all go to, right? How, do, how are you the person that is approaching a client where when they go home in a month, they remember who you are? Mm. Because otherwise I'm just another attorney to them who's looking to get their business. So we're 50 other people at the conference we were just at. But when we can talk about things like, well, I wrote a book and, and they say, well, can I get a copy of that book? And then they Google your name and you say, I can get that at Amazon and it's got reviews or Barnes and Noble. All of a sudden, I'm not just the attorney who was looking for work. It's that attorney who wrote that book. I'm going to pick up that book. And now it's like you're becoming part of their lives outside of when they're in front of their computer. Right. I'm not just another guy looking to handle claims for somebody. Um, but there's a little bit more depth there that they know about. And, you know, I found it's a little frustrating as technology has improved. 
There's certainly less face time with clients because our clients are all over the world now. They're not, you know, Hartford used to be the insurance capital of the world. It still has a lot of big insurance companies, but they're not all there. So then we moved to phones and then emails and people got so used to quick responses. You don't have that deep relationship building that you had very early on in my career and before I was an attorney. So this was something that I was able to use to my advantage to, you know, it doesn't show that I'm a better attorney than anyone else, but it certainly gives someone um, a little bit more sense of who I am. And we all like working with people who we feel like we know. It's not just someone who's calling me for my business all the time. Totally. So have has there been, I mean, like, obviously, I think because you went into it with that mindset and because you really let this grow so organically, I think that's why you've gotten a lot of the success. But from an intentional standpoint, like, have there been specific tactics or strategies or ways you've gone about it once you've seen once you've seen this start snowballing? Totally. I've sent I've sent, you know, I love when people buy books, but, you know, one of the benefits of being the author is you get a lot of the books for whatever it just costs to print them. So, yeah, there have been intentional sending books to people that I've had conversations with. And it's, you know, we used to be, well, can I have a business card so I can diary to follow you up with you on a phone call? Now it's it's writing a handwritten note with a copy of the book and saying it was great catching up and talking about this. I'd love to, you know, I'd love for you to read a copy of this with a signed version, right? It's not just a paperback. I'm giving them a signed version that's personalized. And there is some intention to that. Um, I really do, you know, I'm an authentic person. I really do hope they read it and give me their thoughts. Um, but if it helps us from a marketing perspective, where again, when they have a general question on something, they're calling me now because we've had this rapport outside of just the, I'm a lawyer. Um, yeah, that that's definitely something that I continue to do. Uh, you know, the book's been out about a year, continue to do it monthly. Awesome. So what is the next, like, what does the future look like for you? Is there going to be a sequel is there going to be another book like what's what's coming down the pipe um i wouldn't say a sequel uh, i think the story of the characters in this book have definitely um i got out what i needed to get out for that um, okay. but there is there is absolutely going to be a second book um i'm in the process of brainstorming with that now you know i think um the things i like to write about uh, there's a grain of myself in them. So even in the book that was loosely based on my grandfather, the characters were had as much of me in them as they or another people that I know as my as my grandfather. And um, I think there's a more modern tale that I'd like to tell. You know, um, again, I was in New York after 9/11. Um, I had an incredible group of friends when I was in law school. Uh, some of the stories that happened there, I think there are ways to tie those events into a fictionalized version um, of a story again. And it's been long enough where uh, people won't get in trouble if I put certain things in writing that that may not have been appropriate five years ago. So, um, you know, it's almost been 20 years since I was in law school. So enough time has passed where I think I can start diving into some of those stories a little deeper. Gotcha. And so for, you know, for you going through round two, or if you were talking to somebody starting on book one now, what would you say to do differently or what are you going to do differently? Really good question. Um, I, I really, I would say there's things I, I wouldn't say I would do differently. I think I, there are things that worked that I would do again. Okay. Um, so I think writing every day, it became a habit, just like working out is for people, right? It's, it's a habit. 
Um, if you don't do it for a week, it's much, it's, it's harder to get back into it than if you continue to do it. So writing like that, I think, um, I will continue to write every day. Maybe I'll try to get a little bit more feedback from different groups of people earlier on. But, you know, this was my COVID baby. Uh, a lot of people got dogs. I got a second dog during, during COVID, but this was my thing. And um, I love, because a lot of what I do for a living is, you know, you are in an office or you're in court, but it's a very corporate professionalized setting. I like being able to make something out of nothing. I love doing. I love cooking. I love doing some woodwork, woodwork stuff around the house. Writing for a book for me was very similar. It was taking nothing that existed, and then all of a sudden putting it out. It put it out in the world, and once it's there, no matter what happens to me for the rest of my life, two hundred years from now, those stories are out there, and people are going to have the ability to get them. And that, to me, was something that I'll you know forever be proud of. Um, and something that when I'm long gone, you know, whether it's my kids or grandkids or whoever, um, to be able to pick that up and have that connection to me and frankly, to my grandfather is something that is awesome to me. I love that. That's so great. So what would be, I mean, I guess that kind of covers like the specific advice about it, but like, what would be your advice to a a fellow attorney who came to you and said, Hey, I don't know if I want to, do I want to write this book? Do I want to make this commitment? Do I want to run this marathon? Like anybody coming to you with those big overarching goals, what would, how would you talk to them through that? Well, and frankly, that has happened. So I've had other people, um, attorneys and non-attorneys who have said, I had always wanted to do this. I've put some stuff down, but the fact that you did that, you know, it's kind of, and it's very humbling, frankly, for me to say that, but like the fact that you show, you showed that you could do that. I'm moving forward with this project. Now I've had multiple people say that to me. And that is the most humbling and enjoyable thing I've gotten after the fact. I hope, I think people need to be able to put themselves out there and uh, whether it's take the benefits of that um, praise, people liking it, people disliking it, you have to put yourself out there and be a little bit exposed. Um, you know, talking, I was talking about uh, Carl Fix earlier. He, he loves quoting musicians, right? So I was at a Jack Johnson, Jack Johnson concert on Monday. It was an awesome show. Um, he's got a lot of great songs, but one of them, which is one of the Curious George songs, it's probably a lesser of my favorite Jack songs, but um, the Upside Down song. And he basically says, you know, who's to say I can't do everything, but I can try. And so I'm not someone who thinks you have to do everything, but I'm certainly someone who says you can do anything. And I looked at going to law school, running a marathon, writing a book the same way. I love when people tell me I can't do something. It gives me an edge. And I think again, focusing on what you can control. I really believe people that want to get something done can get it done. And at some point you just have to say, I could care less what other people are going to think. This is important to me and I'm going to get it done. Now I have to uh, stop having the Jack Johnson song play in my head. Now that's true. No, I mean, it's just, it's fascinating to me. Like, obviously there are a number of people that were horrendously negatively impacted by COVID and obviously hundreds of thousands of people died. Yep. And I say that aware of those things, but it's interesting to talk to so many attorneys that either like, you know, on, on the one end of the spectrum, they woke up and realized they were miserable as lawyers and aren't lawyers, or they woke up miserable at some area and then, um, you know, change practice areas or change firms, whatever. But it's cool to see the ones, you know, where you were, it wasn't necessarily like the law firm impact, but it was finding that time for the, I don't even want to call it side hustle, but like the hobby or the interest, the thing that you've always been putting off. 
So it's interesting to see people finally get that, uh, you know, kick in the butt to accomplish those things they've been telling themselves they wanted to do for so long. I, I completely agree. And, and it is hard for me to say something like this because so many people went through such devastating things. I will forever be grateful for the opportunity to have written the book. I will forever be grateful for the time I got to spend with my family. Um, yeah. I, I'm not going to have that kind of time with my wife again until I retire, quite frankly, um, or, or with my kids. And so um, knowing what everyone went through, I still do appreciate, you know, we had to, we, we all went through it. We had to take advantage of whatever we could while trying to keep each other safe. And it was just a crazy time. And again, I keep repeating myself, but focusing on what you can control, that was something I, none of us had control over. And so uh, I, 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 that's kind of been my life goal before I was a professional till now. We have to focus on the things that we can directly impact and stop wasting so much time, energy and resources and stuff that we cannot control at all. Well, and it's it's even I find it to be even more important from a lawyer perspective because of the adversarial nature of our profession. Right. Like at the end of the day, you can do your side of the case. You can't control how they handle their side. You can't control. You can influence what the judge does based upon the law and your arguments. But like at the end of the day, you don't have the same control that you have in most other industries where, you know, you talked about woodworking, you build a table, you build a table. There's not somebody right. else the table for you as you're putting it together. So. No, completely true. Um, and that's, uh, you know, that's another piece of advice is not letting yourself change based on what you're dealing with. A lawyer, you know, the adversarial process can become incredibly, um, people get passionate when they're advocating for a client as they should. But, you know, I was really lucky. Um, my parents, they were very much, um, you treat people with respect all the time, whether they're an intern at a company or the CEO of the company. And I try to take that to my practice. I'm going to advocate for my client, but I'm going to do it in a professional way where I make my arguments, but I do not change who I am just because someone on the other side and I don't see eye to eye. Um, because frankly, it's not about me, right? Lawyers can sometimes have that ego because we're competitive people. It's not about us. I, I come to a client and I bring them options and a recommendation. Clients make decisions. So I can have legal strategy, but at the end of the day, if I'm not serving my client because of my own ego, or if I'm not serving my family because of my own ego, no, that's not the way I want to approach life. So I completely agree. And um, no, this book process um, really brought that home as to what can you do when you're in adverse circumstances, but what can you put back into the world that's going to be better than what you showed up with? And kind of the, the flip side of that, we posted, I, mean, I think it was yesterday, I posted about like on our um, Solutions for Lawyers by Lawyers Facebook group, what about your best employee makes me your best employee? And yep. there were some great answers, but I want to highlight um, Joey Vitale shared like my best employees have in essence the right amount of empathy, like enough to empathize with the client in that moment but not so much that you bring it home and it negatively impacts you. And so it's interesting to talk about like, you know, the book being an outlet along those things, really just the mindset that we have to have as lawyers to not grind ourselves into dust. And I think that's a problem, right? We, we do, lawyers do tend to, whether it's the billable hour, whether it's developing business, we do tend to get very focused on wanting, whether it's to get more cases in, whether it's to win a case, there are times the summer's a good time to talk about it, right? When you get away, you got to get away. And right. um, I, I think that's a healthy mindset that, you know, and that's a generational thing too, quite frankly, because I've shared businesses with people that were 20 years older than me and it's not their fault. They were just brought up in the industry at a different time. And I think uh, lawyers that I'm finding um, 
young lawyers. I still, you know, I'm 41. I still think of myself as a young lawyer. Yeah, but sure. Lawyers, more uh, lawyers with less experience, I guess. Um, they're looking for different things, and quite frankly, the world has shown in the last two years there are ways to be really good advocates, really good lawyers, and excellent employees without necessarily dealing with the standard 1985 era, what a good associate in a law firm was. And I think, frankly, the proactive law firms that acknowledge that and want to do what they can to keep the really good employees are the ones that are going to continue to survive and thrive as we move forward with technology that, again, is completely changing the way that lawyers practice. Well, and to, and to highlight what you talked about, about, you know, they, they were trained a certain way. Look, up until the last, I don't know, five or 10 years, basically all business training was that 1980s boiler room, always be closing mentality. Yep. And so it's so funny to me because like I'll talk to um, like Guy Sokolakis and I had this on, on his episode where like basically everything that we do as digital marketers is how to win friends and influence people just through a computer, just at scale, just with, you know, technology. And like, I, I agree with you. We finally, it seems like we were finally kind of making that um, continuation of that cycle or circling back to actually genuinely caring about each other, which sounds so obvious and ridiculous, but wasn't how business was taught for so long. No, and it's funny when you, you know, bringing it back to my book, because I'm going to shamelessly hawk my book. When I think of what my grandfather went through as a 17 and 18 year old and having to go again back to his country to fight in a war where millions of people, both military and non-military, were killed unnecessarily. Like, is there really anything that big in life that we can't deal with now in our day-to-day -day jobs? This is what people that were 18-year-olds were dealing with 75 years ago. Let's not make, you know, issues bigger than they really are. And so I try to, I think, frankly, the book helped with that perspective too. Um, we try to make all of our problems the biggest things in the world. Every generation has its problems. Frankly, I think um, COVID obviously was hopefully the big one that we're dealing with. Maybe not. But when you see what people used to have to go through in a much harder time, I, I just hope people keep perspective. Totally. And it occurs to me, I don't think we've ever said the title of the book. So the title of the book is The Road Will Someday Bend. Thank you for saying that. I'm, I'm shamelessly hawking the book without even saying what it is. So again, it's The, the Road Will Someday Bend. It can be found at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anywhere else. And obviously, if you're watching this on Facebook, you've got it in the links. But if you're listening to this on the podcast or somewhere else, it may not be there. So I'm glad that we were able to uh, make sure we had that. All right. So as we get towards the end, anything else you want to make sure we cover? Any other information you want to make sure you give to people? Uh, I think my it is just coming back to what we said earlier, whether it's writing a book, um, whether it's, you know, putting off that vacation or, um, you know, you always wanted to go skydiving. Who knows how much time we have? I think you have to do what you can and um, do what you can, when you can, how you can. I think you need to be out there in the community. That's another thing, if I can say, we talked about it a little bit earlier in my bio. I do think um, as lawyers, uh, frankly, if you want to bring it back to there, um, we're all in different practices, but we have been trained to be able to be of service to others. And I do believe we have an obligation to help who we can, when we can, how we can. And I think you have to help those you're passionate about. I'm a big Special Olympics supporter. That's where I want to spend my free time in the nonprofit world. Find the thing you're passionate about and help people that can use your help. Totally. And the, you know, we're talking about this sort of from that networking marketing perspective, but a lot of times you knowing somebody who has a need that you can't help and connecting them with somebody else is a win-win-win, right? Like you are getting them to the right person to help. You are getting that person some business. 
you're getting your, you know, credibility bump, brand building, niceness points, karma, whatever you want to call it between both those people, as opposed to, I think so often we hear that comment and we as lawyers think, well, you know, take some cases that are a little outside your wheelhouse to help the client. And then you really end up, you know, burning yourself out and not having, uh, or not being able to give the client the right result. Totally. Be a facilitator. I don't want to just be known as a lawyer. I think I started my, when you asked who I am, I am a problem solver. I want people to contact me, whether they need an introduction, they have a legal question, or they know I know someone because I'm engaged in the community. If I can make an introduction, always be of service to others by being a facilitator. Awesome. All right. So as we get towards the end here with Matt Necci, I want to talk about our next episode. We have another Matt on. Matt Colseth will be on with us on july 21st at 4 p.m eastern time so a little bit later than this episode started on july 21st we're going to talk about how to network at scale this conversation with matt colseth is going to be super interesting really what we're talking about is in essence running ads and doing outbound for the purpose of finding referral sources so not just to do all those things for clients but to do that to find new people that you can refer business to and get business referred from so if you are um you know interested in networking or networking at all and really want to figure out that next step to do it at scale and keep expanding your reach, you got to tune in next week with Matt Colseth where we'll talk about that. But I don't want to let Matt Nechi go without one final tip. I know we've, we've covered so much and I love that like we got into, we got into so much mindset here, but really it fits the topic of the book writing. It fits the topic of being, showing up better in networking situations. It fits a topic about having a better conversation than the stupid, you know, this is about the weather and those kind of things. So if somebody's been listening to this for the last 57 minutes and they remember nothing you said except for this, what would be the most important thing, the biggest nugget of wisdom, your biggest takeaway for them to be the exhibit A of a successful lawyer such as yourself? Other than love UConn Huskies and not UCF. Um, <laughs> I can't stress enough. I think being authentic is, is what, um, whether you're an attorney or you're a, um, a lawyer or, or a legal person who's no longer practicing, but in another industry, people can tell when you're authentic. Um, can we be showmen and sometimes be perceived as someone who's there to, to work for business? Sure. But people want to know that you care about what they're going through. The word you used earlier, empathy, I think is the right one. If you can authentically be yourself and be passionate about the things that you do and that you're, that you love, it shows. And those are the type of people that I want to be around. And those are frankly the type of people I want to do business with. Awesome. All right. And like I said, we're going to cut this up into a rest of episode. So one more time, just for everybody, let's uh, make sure we get the book title out there. The Road Will Someday Bend by Matthew Sketchy Necci. There we go. Love it. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Matt, and everybody else who's listened to this or watched us uh, with this live. We'll see you next week to talk about how to network at scale in the Thanks, meantime. Jordan. Great weekend. Thanks.